My name is Tom Holland, co-founder of These Islands. With me, I have a co-conspirator, Professor Ali Ansari from the University of St. Andrews. We're here to talk about how we got involved. Ali, what was your interest in this theme? Being based in St. Andrews, we were obviously in the middle of the experience of the Scottish referendum in 2014. And I think that experience alerted me and awoke me to the importance of becoming more politically engaged with the matters that affect us today. I was very struck in 2014 how well organised the Yes campaign was and how badly organised I felt, certainly at a grassroots level, the No campaign was. The arguments in favour of the United Kingdom were really being neglected in favour of what became known as Project Fear. And Project Fear had its limitations, I think, as we all found out. I was also particularly struck by how difficult it was to get people south of the border in England and other parts of the United Kingdom interested in what was going on. When I talked to colleagues in England, it was almost as if this Scottish referendum was a rather minor nuisance. And done with. Yeah, you know, and it's one of those things the Scots do now and then and let's all get over it and then we can get on with life, so to speak. I think as we approached the referendum, people began to take it far more seriously. They began to realise what a major shock it would be if suddenly Scotland decided to separate from the rest of the United Kingdom. At the time, the only people I remember who paid any interest was this gentleman called Tom Holland and his colleague Dan Snow. They'd written this love letter to Britain, you see. And I thought, well, how nice that someone's actually taken notice of what we're doing, because we felt a little bit cut off, to be honest. We felt as if nobody cared. It just so happened that Tom came up to St Andrews to give a talk. We were chatting away. It took off from there, really. And so Tom and I were then discussing what we could do to become a little bit more proactive, better prepared. At that time, of course, there was a lot of discussion about a next referendum. I was pretty convinced that there would be one fairly soon. We had the example of Canada and Quebec, and they had two referendums. The SNP were doing marvellously in the polls. It just didn't look great. And I said, well, in my view, Great Britain is worth putting up a fight for. Even if it has to go that way, we should at least make an effort. Then Tom introduced me to our third co-conspirator, Kevin Haig. I always had this idea of some sort of think tank organisation. I thought it's impossible that this country lacks the intellectual firepower, if you will, to actually put forward a positive case. And what we need to do, the three of us, is to try and be the catalyst to bring these people together. And then... Well, also, what intervened in the meanwhile was Brexit. Of Which, course, of course, well, then completely threw the dice yes, up in the air yeah. again. But I think we were well underway before Brexit. Yeah. I think Brexit was certainly not the result most of us had been expecting. But, the it, result, but it gave a kind of gave renewed saliency to what Absolutely. we were doing. Because obviously, as well as foregrounding the question of how Scotland would react, mm. Scotland voted to remain. Yes. England and Wales didn't. There was also the issue of Ireland. Mm. And... That was a crucial aspect also I think that, of these islands. Absolutely. And, and our idea always was this should not be a Scottish-centred organisation. It needs to be something looking at the United Kingdom in totality in relation with the region. And of course, the Brexit vote suddenly brought that into sharp focus. Suddenly it became apparent to us that there are all sorts of issues, particularly in terms of names and the semantics of it all. It's amazing that we don't have a single accepted name for the people of these islands. I discovered that there was a moment in the 19th century when they tried to get people to adopt the term United Kingdomers, which obviously was so unattractive that people left it aside. We don't really know what to call each other. And that's very strange, really, for a country that But basically... it's expressive of a kind of embarrassment. Yes, and absolutely. And a kind of reticence that 
I think until about 10, 20 years ago, was the default position for the English. Perhaps not for the Welsh, perhaps not for the Scottish, perhaps not for those either side of the border in Ireland. And so this is as much about how the English understand themselves as it is about everyone else. And I have to say that as someone who regards himself as British and English, I am embarrassed really to have to be enthusiastic about either. Yes. I have always assumed that the rightful position of someone who is British or English is to stand on the sidelines and snipe and complain and moan. And one of the things that the Scottish referendum brought home for me (laughs) as a terrible sense of shock was that actually if I wanted the UK to cohere, I was actually going to have to come up with positive reasons for that. And I found that very embarrassing and awkward. And one of the reasons that I do do this is that when I was about 20, living in Wiltshire, so as far from Scotland really as you can get, I picked up Alistair Gray's great novel, Lanark, his remarkable fantasy stroke realist riff on Glasgow. Got obsessed by it, read all his other stuff. Alistair Gray was a very articulate, passionate, uh, romantic nationalist. And I was very swayed by that. And for about a year became probably Wiltshire's only Scottish nationalist, read a great deal of early stuff arguing for Scottish independence. So was alert to it. And then I moved off that and started worrying about the degree to which the constituent parts of the UK might surrender to the sugar rush of nationalism. So not just in Scotland, but in England as well. Because I've increasingly come to think that actually Britishness is a kind of soft grey drizzle that descends over the excitement of nationalism. And I'm all in favour, really, of soft grey drizzle. It's been very interesting for me as someone who's an immigrant to this country. I came from Iran when I was 10. And I've always been absorbed within, I suppose, a British stroke English culture because I've always been to British schools. But I was always struck by the fact that there's this embarrassment. In fact, Orwell, I think, says that the English are the only people who are embarrassed about their nation. If I can use the term, the Celtic nationalisms, is what Orwell called them, the Celtic nationalisms. They're legitimate. People can talk about them. This is carried on in a harmonious fashion until I think in the last 10 years, maybe last 20 years, it's been taken to such an extent that it's reignited in English nationalism. We've got into a slightly deteriorating cycle between the different competing nationalisms, which in my view, Britain was invented as a political term in the 18th century in order to subsume. Although a British identity is much older than... Yes, Welsh, no, absolutely. English or Scottish yes. identity is Britain the modern. as an island. Yeah, yeah, yeah uh, absolutely. It goes all the way back to the earliest mention of it in the writings absolutely. of Pythias. I, I am sadly a modern historian. Found. That's one of the reasons why, <laughs> actually, I find, I find the idea of everyone in this island mm. having a shared civic sense incredibly moving because I'm incredibly aware <laughs> of how fragmented it once was. Yes, I'm aware that England and Scotland are themselves united kingdoms and that the process by which... Wessex and Mercia and Northumbria Mm. and Kingdom of Strathclyde and Pictland and Dalriada were brought together and fused and forged to become distinctive polities. And then the way in which Scotland and England and Wales were fused together to form distinctive polities, that seems to me a remarkable achievement and one that should not be lightly thrown away. No, no, I entirely agree. And I think part of the problem is, is because we're so embarrassed to talk about it. I think the embarrassment is largely on the part of the English. And I think it's yes. a reflexive fact, which obviously is a fuel for resentment beyond England. There has been a complacency. There has been a kind of arrogance mm. in the English attitude towards 
the UK, the way in which England has been synonymous with Britain, which has been synonymous yes. with the United Kingdom. Of course, none of those are synonyms. They are all subtly different. And I think that one of the aspirations for these islands would absolutely be to draw the attention of the English to the fact that they live in this complex multinational state. And there are all kinds of ways in which waking up English awareness of that, I think, can strengthen the future of the UK. One of the things that I came across during the referendum and its aftermath was very striking. You talk to Scots who were leaning towards yes, and they said, we have spent years investing in the idea of Britain. But the English don't. The English keep talking about England. They don't talk about Britain. And yet there was a deep-seated anxiety about it, a deep-seated sense of regret, I think. The constitutional aspect of this is obviously very, very important. So is the economic case. But I think that one of the things that came out of the referendum was precisely that there was too much of a focus on the constitution. There was too much of a focus on economics because actually the ties that bind are much profounder than that. Mm. They revolve around sport. They revolve around music. They revolve around TV. They revolve around the shared ecosystem that we have. All these things actually often matter to people far more. For me, the Scottish referendum was excruciating, terrifying and completely exhilarating because it was the first political campaign that I'd been passionately committed to. In a sense, because it was a topic that I'd been obsessing about since I was 20, it was kind of like the World Cup. It was kind of like the Olympics. It was what I'd been building up to. And it seemed to me a great debate about history. Essentially, at stake was how did people understand the history of Britain? Mm. That was really what lay at issue. So I threw myself into it with Dan Snow, the historian who seemed the only other person who (laughs) shared my passionate (laughs) obsession with this. We were inspired by David Bowie at the Brits sending Kate Moss with a message to Scotland saying, please don't go. And suddenly, because it was Kate Moss and David Barry, it was all over the newspapers. So we thought on the back of that, well, obviously, celebrities get attention. So we wrote this love letter from the rest of the UK, from England, Wales and Northern Ireland to Scotland saying, absolutely up to you if you want to leave, but we would be very sad if you did. And then we got as many famous people as we possibly could, from Paul McCartney to David Attenborough, from David Beckham to Judy Dench. And that was pretty much the focus of our efforts. But all along, of course, we were keeping feverish track of what the mood was up in Scotland and particularly what the mood was with regard to arguments that, frankly, I was not really clued up about, of which the economy was obviously absolutely central. I discovered that the single most impressive voice making the case that Scotland's economic interests would best be served by staying in the UK was coming from this guy called Kevin Haig, who I'd never heard of, who turned out to be a businessman, ran a number of businesses, among which he sold pet food, a topic that his increasing number of opponents were endlessly making play with. So I thought, well, obviously, if he's attracting this degree of opposition, then he must be worth following. And I rapidly realised that a lot of the politicians and the economists and the columnists who were writing about it, who did know about the economy, were picking up on what Kevin was saying as well. I should say that by the end of the referendum, he had made himself one of the most influential spokesmen in favour of the UK that the referendum had thrown up. I went with Dan to the count in Glasgow on the night of the Scottish referendum. 
Scotland voted to stay in the UK. Big sigh of relief. But the margin was obviously not crushingly decisive. And I remember flying back to Southampton with Dan and we said, what should we do? And we said, we've got to weaponize Kevin. <laughs> we've got to provide him with a podium that he can continue to make himself heard. So that was always at the back of my mind. Then when I met Ali at St. Andrews and we were talking this over and I thought, well, I must introduce Ali to Kevin. And so our interests, our concerns and our different strengths threaded together Several things that I personally had taken out of the referendum. One was that focusing exclusively on constitutional matters and economic matters was inadequate. One of the things that was impressive about the Yes campaign was the sense that they were engaged with the entire spectrum of Scottish culture. And I felt that the No campaign, the Better Together campaign, missed a trick with that. The United Kingdom is nothing if not a cultural powerhouse. Why not explore the implications of that? The other aspect was really a corollary of that, that lots of people who wanted to be engaged with it and who had expertise didn't feel that there was a place for them to engage. And so, again, wanted to provide a space where that could happen. And I suppose above all, there was a kind of envious sense that the nationalists in the Scottish referendum, a bit like the supporters of Brexit in the European referendum, had a blank slate onto which they could project all their hopes, all their aspirations. And so there was a sense of novelty to their arguments that defenders of the status quo simply couldn't approximate to. But I began to think that that was a false understanding because actually there's no reason why those who want to invest their hopes in a union where all the people of Great Britain and Northern Ireland are able to contribute to the future, why that can't be at least as vibrant, at least as hopeful, at least as optimistic, at least as innovative, at least as creative as those who want to rip the whole fabric up. I suppose ultimately that is the ambition and it's a very long-term one, but these islands is absolutely not Pollyanna-ish about the future of the UK. It's not blindly optimistic. It recognises that there are issues. It recognises that there are problems. But it operates on the principle that you should never let a good crisis go to waste. If there are problems with the country, maybe it's better to build on what we've got rather yeah. than really to make a mess of things by destroying everything. Well, more than once during the referendum, I heard people say that what we need is a period of creative destruction. And it absolutely horrified me. You're talking about someone who's come from a country that's had a revolution and a very destructive revolution. They presented, I think, a highly effective utopian vision of the future because they could project something on a blank slate. The economics of it, of course, never worked. But if you look at the criticism we had during the EU referendum about experts, well, all this started during the Scottish referendum. Anytime anyone said, well, the economics don't add up, people said, oh, well, these experts are coming to befuddle us and confuse us. And I think we felt that there had to be a vehicle or a means by which we could try and encourage a sense of renewal rather than sitting back and waiting for things to happen to us. Let's see if we can't engage with these ideas a bit more and also build a more positive narrative even that people could be informed about and could articulate. A further aspect of these islands that's very important, I think, is to recognise that people from all across the spectrum of political opinion have contributions to make. That was the case in the Scottish referendum when Dan and I were organising our compendium of celebrities. We had help from Labour, Liberal Democrats, Conservatives. And 
that reflects the fact that actually the political parties as we have them today reflect threads and elements from across every corner of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Conservative traditions come from Scotland as much as from England. Labour traditions come as much from England as they do from Wales. And this was an important aspect of what I certainly wanted for these islands, was that it provided a space for anyone, whatever their political opinions. We do not want this to be party political. We have a very impressive advisory council drawn from a wider range of experts, but we have no politicians, no serving politicians. The national tree is the oak, and to get an oak, you have to plant a little acorn. And we're very much at the stage at the moment of watering that little acorn. Perhaps a little shoot has emerged from through the grass and the dirt. But this is just the beginning. So it's been up and running for a few months. So far, the focus has been very much on establishing our credentials, on getting a spectacular array of experts who can authenticate everything that we publish, on starting to establish a presence in all the various corners of the UK. Our ambition is to see that mighty trunk grow, to see those branches spread. And to do that, of course, we need people to engage and to join in. One of the fundamental principles that shapes what we want to try and do is to not only inform the debate, but also raise the standard of the debate so it's a lot more civil and constructive. And we want to engage with all sorts of opinion. We want to draw a range of views to discuss things, to bring this into the public forums. We want to try and do that, obviously, through the publication of papers, short briefing papers. During the recent Brexit debates about how the Northern Irish border should be organised, it became clear that both Irish and British journalists didn't really understand, and I was among them, didn't understand what the names should properly be. Because, of course, the names depend on where you are. It depends if you're in Ireland or in the United Kingdom. So we commissioned a piece from Mary Daly, professor at University College in Dublin, who spelt it out for us. So we've started now with our website. We're putting up papers. We're hoping in due course that we'll be able to expand our activities not only in social media, but perhaps also with meetings and workshops where we can get more and more people engaged and more and more people energised. All three of us passionately believe that the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland is something that's worth fighting for. All of us accept that it's not perfect, but it's certainly not at a stage where we should even be considering its dissolution. As I said, there is an element of embarrassment about this. I am embarrassed to be saying that I think Britain and the United Kingdom are both worth fighting for. But I do think that it is better that the bonds of civic responsibility that have grown up over the past centuries are maintained rather than shattered. And while I accept that economic issues are incredibly important and perhaps central for most people. Nevertheless, that is not the total sum. When we're talking about these islands and what links people on these islands and particularly within the bounds of the United Kingdom, we're not just talking about tax transfers. We're not just talking about issues of currency. We are also talking about memory. We're talking about landscape. We're talking about television programmes. We're talking about birds. All of these things are part of the fabric that we share. And I do not want to see that fabric torn.